Hi, I'm Dan Dunn, host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, the most wildly entertaining adult beverage-themed podcast in the history of the medium. That's right, the boozy best of the best, baby. And we have the cool celebrity promos to prove it. Check this out. Hi, I'm Allison Janney, and you're here with me on What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And that's my sexy voice. Boom. Boom is right, Academy Award winner Allison Janney. As you can see, celebrities just love this show. How cool is that? Hey, this is Scotty Pippen, and you're listening to The Dan Dunn Show. And, wait, hold on. The name of the show is what? All right, sure. Scotty Pippen momentarily forgot the show's name, but there's a first time for everything. Hey, everyone, this is Scoot McNary. I'm here with Dan Dunn on What Are You Drinking? What's it called again? Fine, twice. But famous people really do love this show. Hi, this is Will Forte, and you're, for some reason, listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. What do you mean for some reason, Will Forte? What's going on? Hi, this is Kurt Russell. Listen, I escaped from New York, but I couldn't get the hell out of Dan Dunn's happy hour. Please, send help. Send help? Oh, come on, Kurt Russell. Can somebody out there please help me? I'm Dita Von Teese, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. Let me try one more time. Come on. Is that right? What we're drinking? It's amazing. It's amazing. Is it right? Ah, that's better. So be like Dita Von Teese, friends, and listen to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Rachel Slade is here. Rachel, of course, is the author of Into the Raging Sea, 33 Mariners, One Megastorm, and The Sinking of El Faro, which was a notable book of the year by the New York Times Book Review and a New York Times bestseller. Also, just fantastic book. She's got a new one coming out in November. It's called Making It in America, The Almost Impossible Quest to Manufacture in the USA and How It Got That Way. 
She's been working on this for a long time. I talked to her privately about it like a year ago, and I've been dying to uh, talk to her about the book and get her back on the podcast to discuss what she'd been researching and writing about. So this is a really fun, engaging conversation. It's about manufacturing and kind of the history of manufacturing in the United States and elsewhere, which is something that, frankly, I just never think about. I just, you know, at one point we're we're talking about the shirts that I wear on the show because I wear these shirts um, by a company called um, Out of Print, which have book covers on them. And she says, uh, where were those shirts made? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, I didn't even I didn't even bother to look. But she bothers to look and not only bothers to look, really gets into it and gets into the weeds about it. And it, it's going to be a fantastic book. I'm very excited to read it. Um, we talk about all kinds of things. We talk about kind of the history of U.S. manufacture since the Great War. Um, we talk about the whole made in Japan, um, the concept of Kaizen, how centers of especially textile and apparel manufacturing change depending on markets because of the, the sort of moving capital. We talk about unions and how important unions are and how union membership has been decimated in the last like 50 years and stuff like that. And there's a lot of things about unions and union membership that we don't even realize are important and contribute to our society. Uh, we talk about that. We talk about Ronald Reagan. We talk about the shift from pensions to 401ks and how it ties people into the markets and how nefarious that is. We talk about work culture. We talk about China. And we talk about Animal House for like two minutes, which <laughs> was not on my intended topics of discussion. But, um, you know, I can always stop whatever I'm doing to talk about Animal House for any length of time because she's also apparently seen Animal House as many times as I have. So stick around for that. Um, Rachel's always fantastic. I love talking to her. Uh, you're going to love the conversation. This was a week of series finales. Succession is over. Ted Lasso is over. Speaker Kevin McCarthy is over. I don't know. Three big finales. Um, you know, as I'm, I'm, I'm recording this on Thursday morning at 6 a.m., I'm pretty sure it looks like they're going to pass this bill to um, expand the debt ceiling or whatever. So the Republican plan to cause global economic collapse, apparently Knockwood has failed, which it should because it's nihilistic and awful and beyond irresponsible. And those people should all be ashamed of themselves, including, by the way, the fucking Democrats voting against it. Just sit down. This isn't the time to Bernie Sanders this shit. Um, you know, let's save the global economy for Christ's sake. Fucking protest votes. Ridiculous. Um, I'm happy about that. I never really went too closely into it because I kind of thought that by hook or by crook, they'd figure out some kind of workaround here. I mean, it's in the 14th Amendment. We have to pay the debts. Uh, Aaron Rupar's column, the guy Noah that that guest rights there sometimes put it great the just sort of explain what the debt ceiling is um in a in a piece he wrote yesterday the day before he said it's like if you uh you know you put three dollars on your credit card and then you pass a bill afterwards saying you're only allowed to pay two dollars back that's basically what mccarthy's trying to do it makes no fucking sense if people understood it really they would know that it makes no fucking sense and they would be like who is this jackass but, you know, the people that are incapable of seeing Kevin McCarthy as a complete jackass, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to say about those people at this point. Matt Gates, who was the leader of the, uh, the kind of insurrectionist group of Republicans vis-a-vis -vis, uh, McCarthy's speakership, as we recall, it took 15 votes to vote this asshole in. He's now pissed off 
So we'll see if this thing lasts or if he's able to endure for another season. Um, as for the other two shows, Succession, I, I thought, you know, that was a great landing. I think they, you know, they stuck the landing, as they say, in gymnastics. I'm not going to say what, what happened on the show, but I will say that as someone who watched it and sort of obsessed over it for a long time now, um, I'm satisfied by the ending. I thought this the season had its its valleys definitely. There was there were some lulls in the action in the middle after Logan died, but the last couple episodes I think really rose to the occasion and um I've just enjoyed the hell out of the show. You know, it, it it's been great and you know, it's definitely one of those shows. It goes in the pantheon of great shows along with uh The Wire, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, Mad Men, whatever. Uh Deadwood, you know, which Brian Cox is also in, by the way. So um, also Ted Lasso ended and, you know, I, I think it's getting a lot of guff Ted Lasso is because it was sort of, I guess, sappy people are saying, look, I, I don't need every fucking show. Does it need to be full of like weird suspense and plot twists and fucking bad juju all the time? You know, it's okay to make a show about happy people finding happiness and getting over their problems and, and pulling together and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's part of humanity too, guys. Ted Lasso is a comedy in the strict Shakespearean sense of the word. It ends with a wedding. Um, I don't know if it's the very last shot, but you'll you'll see. There's a wedding there at the end that's fantastic. And, you know, I, I just, I really enjoyed this season. My fucking adrenal glands are shot, man. I don't need any more, like, weird suspense and violence and all this stuff from my from my TV watching. Sometimes it's nice to just watch something that isn't like that. And the show isn't intended to be like that. For what it is, for the intended purpose of that show, Ted Lasso is a fucking A+. And that ending was an A fucking plus for what it is. It's not aspiring to be the same thing that Succession is. But for what it is, it's not possible for it to be better. You know? Um, I did not enjoy Keely and Jack this season. I thought that subplot was stupid. Otherwise... I like pretty much everything else that they did. Everything. I mean, it was just great. Um, I liked all the auxiliary characters. Every time they introduced a new person on Ted Lasso, for like, even for like 30 seconds, they, that person managed to do something that was memorable or funny or, or whatever. And it's great that, you know, and unlike Succession, where they're just in this, in, first they're in the boardroom and then they're in the wedding and then they're in the funeral and then they're, they're always together all the time in this sort of incestuous, uh, you know, it's like a Sartre play, No Exit, where they can't get out of each other's grasp. But it's, it's basically a stage play in, in very, very exotic, pretty locales, right? Uh, you know, Ted Lasso doesn't have those rules. We're allowed to like go home with Rebecca and see where Sam, what Sam's restaurant's like. And, you know, there's Ted and his mom drinking in the, like, it's, it's nice to be able to deviate away from the workplace and see how people actually live. Cause it helps round out their characters. Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, I thought it was great. And because we're in the simulation and this is something my wife pointed out that I didn't even know. Cause she's so such a good actress. Uh, Rebecca on Ted Lasso has the same mom as Kendall and Roman and Shivroy. Yeah. So there is some overlap. There's a little bit of overlap on this Venn diagram between these two shows that both ended this week. Basketball is ending. Man, it's, it's, we're, and the writer's strike means that there's not a lot of new things coming. We're going to be in a desert now of, of stuff. Um, but, 
you know, like I said, I really enjoyed Ted Lasso a lot. The succession finale was great. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens with this Speaker McCarthy thing. Uh, adieu, buddy. Fucking such a dumbass. The picture of him at Mar-a-Lago kissing Trump's ring like a few weeks after the insurrection. I mean, really, in any other society. But, you know, here we are. Um, no wonder I need my Ted Lasso, man. I No wonder I need it. You know, we just... We, we can't be goldfish all the time, dude. We got to remember all this terrible stuff or else the bad guys are going to get away with it. All right. I went on way too long. Um, great conversation with Rachel Slade. One of my favorites. So, um, yeah, I'm going to stop the prattle now. We'll be right back with Rachel Slade. It can happen to anyone. We see something on social media, a meme or a TikTok, and it confirms a false narrative that we believe, like that the 2020 election was stolen or that Elon Musk is a genius. I know it can happen because it happened to me. Hi, I'm Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I only recently discovered that all that anti-vax stuff was Russian propaganda designed to make us sicker, weaker, and more divided. It was an op, and I fell for it. Twice. I knew I had a problem, so I went to a meeting of UIA, Useful Idiots Anonymous, and it changed my life. How can you tell if you're a useful idiot? Maybe you're fluffing Victor Orban or Roger Waters. Maybe you're hosting Twitter spaces with Nazis. Maybe you recently defected to Russia because your butt hurt that everyone called bullshit on your accusation. Maybe you're trying to primary Biden. If you think you might be a useful idiot, Call 1-800-G-R-U-F-O-O-L or check out our page on Truth Social. Useful Idiots Anonymous, because the first step in solving a problem is admitting you have one. I'm Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and I'm a useful idiot. And now, back to the show. Rachel Slade, welcome back to Prevail. Hello, hello. It's so great to be here. It's so nice to see you. You've been you've been like locked away in a garret room uh, working on a book, uh, which is called Making It in America, uh, The Almost Impossible Quest to Manufacture in the USA and How It Got That Way. So um, at one point, I've, I have known about this book for a long time now. And one of the thrusts of it, I think, wasn't the title going to be American Hoodie at one point? It was. It was. But the problem was that they started shopping that around the U.S., our publishing sales team. And it had too much association with possibly racial violence or um, or police violence. Yeah. So, And that's not what this book is about. So they decided to make things simpler. Um, I actually like the double entendre. Or the double meaning, making yeah. it in America. And yeah, I think it it's America. good. I think it's a good title. I wanted you to know Thank that you. this hoodie that I have on is yes? one of those. It's one of those hoodies. It is. I bought it when I talked to you last time about this, and you told me the name, and I have this hoodie. Greg, yeah. you are an American hero. I am. I am. You are an American hero. I was going. So we were talking about your T-shirt, mm -hmm. which is this company that prints book covers on it, and I was going to ask you where it was made. I don't know. It's the company is it, go figure in Brooklyn, which, you know, uh, but I don't know if the shirts are made in Brooklyn. I can't, I cannot speak to that, but so you don't um, look, um, no, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't look, I should probably look, you know, 
Um, yeah. So you should look. The, the, I, mean, I can't look now without taking my shirt off. But because that's what started it for me. Okay. Um, you know, that's what started this journey is that ever since I was very, very young, I was like a tag freak, a label freak. I okay. loved finding out where things were from, where things were made, you know, and then imagine who made them. And so I was born in, I'm just going to say this now, everybody will know, I was born in 69. I've lived in seven decades. Is that right? Um, but I'm actually not that old, but, um, right. We're not that old. Although you're, not, we're you're, both... you're, not, you're the same age as my wife and many other people that I know. So there. Therefore not old. No. Although we're both sporting no. this fabulous now crown of gray hair. Oh yeah. We have great, nobody can see this, which is, which is no. too bad, but we have, we have lovely gray hair, um, I've really had gray do. hair for a long time. It's, it's not, you know, I've yeah, had well, gray maybe hair. so have I, I just <laughs> <laughs> was taking care of it for a while, but, um, but when I was really little, I was obsessed with these labels and um, and tags. And I remember when I was very little, I, I have no idea how old I was, but I was I was old enough to read, but not old enough to really do anything else. <laughs> OK. Um, and my grandmother came home from a trip to Israel and she handed me a doll and I take this doll and I'm holding it in my hands. I'm like examining it and flipping it over because I'm a little bit of an asshole. And I find a label on it that says made in Japan. And no filter, truth teller, Rachel Slade. I immediately said, wait, how did a doll in Israel get made in Japan? And then of course my mom was like, oh, we're just gonna, you know, nicely escort Rachel out of the room. <laughs> but, you know, it was that kind of thing where I, it, it was a disconnect for me. I, I was also one of those really dumb people. I did not come from a sports family, but I was like one of those people who thought that like sports teams, the players who played on those teams came from those cities. So like if, if you were rooting for the Phillies, then you were rooting for Philadelphians. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Even though, as Jerry Seinfeld <laughs> likes to say, it's just laundry. We're just rooting for laundry. Yeah. Um, right, exactly. So, you know, I just always had a sense of place that we are here and therefore we make our things and, you know, we populate our sports teams. And so the idea of then growing up, NAFTA happens. Um, a lot of outsourcing starts to happen, obviously, in the in the eighties, but then really kicks in in the nineties, and then suddenly, you know, you're in a gap. Anybody remember Gap? You're in a gap because all you know, into the gap, right? That was yeah. my adult awakening, and you're like sifting through these t-shirts, these stacks of t-shirts, and and like in one stack, you might have three different countries represented. And if you start paying attention, you will see how those countries change, right? So at one point it was China, right? And then it became Bangladesh and Vietnam and um, Cambodia you'll see a lot now. And so those, those countries that are making our clothes and all of our goods continually change. Like this, this is a, a moving capital, right? Capital is free and it just keeps moving to wherever it can find the cheapest labor. So that's why 
that started, this, that kind of triggered this whole thing. And I wanted to understand, first of all, is that a bad thing? And then what are people doing about it? What does it mean to try to make things in America? We talked about this sort of off the record, um, not being recorded, probably a year ago, I feel like. And mm. it's very, fa very fascinating because, I, and your your stuff always does that. You, your brain goes in places that my brain would not even think to go, which I think <laughs> is so interesting. Like just that, that, you know, you're looking at the labels, like if I look at a label, I'll, I'll think about the country, but not in, in the same way that, that you do um, in, in terms of the, the larger process of how all this stuff works, right? Like, and that there is some kind of logic to it, not just the cheapest, you know, places to get the labor, but also that on some level, we want to reward maybe the, the certain countries for being on the team and, and not hmm. others. Um, hmm. Yeah, there is definitely uh, a lot of politics in, in that. But yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, well, I don't, I can't speak for you, but you know, I'm always looking for systems. I'm always looking to understand kind of the larger forces that, that are ending up in my, you know, that are, that are dictating what ends up in my closet or what ends up in, in, on my plate, on my table. You know what I mean? So like, yeah, yeah I, I, much to probably the frustration of half the people who read my books who are just like, be linear. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a linearity to it. Like you, I think you do, you know, I don't think you're not linear. I think you're just you're you're expansive in the way that everything falls together. And I think you, for something like trade, and these are things that you're interested in, like trade, manufacturing, logistics, mm -hmm. shipping. These are vast enterprises that require lots of different moving parts, and it takes a certain kind of brain to be able to process that. Which um, <laughs> mind is not. I don't. It just doesn't operate that way. I'm either expansive or I'm really good at making up unified, unifying theories that bear no <laughs> basis in reality. But that's cool. That's cool. It's just it's cool. fine. Your yeah, your story about about the doll from Japan that was from Israel reminds me. My when my grandparents came back from they went to Rome, I think, and they came back with these forks that were Italian forks and they were the ones that were the Italian forks were better. Cause they were like the tines were sharper and you could jab the, <laughs> the ZD better. And there were only, I think four of them. So we always wanted the Italian fork. And I remember one day I turned the Italian fork over and it said right on it made in USA. So. Wow. That's weird. Yeah. So when would that have been? I don't know. It was probably. I mean, how many decades ago? It was right? in the seventies, I think maybe even Jeez. it may have bought them earlier than that even, but. Uh, huh. Like, this isn't even an Italian fork that we've been calling an Italian fork. Well, that's really fascinating. And, you know, the reason I asked about the decade was because, um, you know, it, it did take the Italians around a long time to get their manufacturing together after World War II and everything else that happened to them. So the idea that the Italians would be importing American goods, that had to have been a rather long time ago. Yeah, it was. It was. This was a long time ago. This was this was quite a long time ago. But OK, so you talked about the war meaning World War II, and this this post-war period. And I feel like some of the story of this sort of begins there to some, to some degree because, you know, we have a situation where we have Japan in the Pacific and we mm -hmm. have, you know, Germany in, in, in Europe, and we don't want something to happen that happened at the end of the First World War, which is we're just like, fuck these people. Um, let's starve them to oblivion because we saw that, you know, what happened and it didn't work out very well with Germany after the First World War. The, the reparations that were had to pay in hard currency basically indirectly led to the rise of Hitler, which, you know, 
bad. So I think after the Second World War, we said, we're not going to let that happen. We have to figure out ways to get these two massive industrialized countries back into the fold. Mm. And I feel like that's part of where the story begins in your book, or am I totally off base? Oh, no. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. I mean, okay. you know, those, those, well, all of Europe and Japan were devastated and their industrial centers were devastated and they were, they were in trouble. And so, you know, I mean, the real problem was that we were just beginning to see the Cold War. And so the question was, who's going to be exporting what to whom, right? Mm -hmm. So because we had beefed up actually during World War I is when we really started beefing up our exports um, and then super beefed up <laughs> during World War II. I mean, we were just a manufacturing powerhouse. We had like finally figured it out. It actually had taken us a long time. I mean, we were fairly good at making things for ourselves, but the idea of like actually having a robust export economy was was like a new thing in World War One. I. I, I'm, I don't know if you remember, but I, because I have written about this, but you know, we didn't have any ships um, yeah. to export things during World War One. And our infrastructure, we didn't have a highway system, obviously, that came much yep. later. But also our um, railroads were kind of a mess because um, they had all been developed by various you know, industrials, various entrepreneurs, they had different gauges. Yeah, you know, they're not they, uniform. No, they weren't uniform at all. And and where they went was oftentimes at the whim of, you know, whoever was politically powerful at that time. And so it was really a patchwork of a system of logistics, yeah. which becomes really, really important when you're trying to prepare for war. Like that is the limiting factor. So the fact that the United States could actually pull it together and pull together an army and go over to Europe was a miracle. Now I'm talking about World War One. Yeah. It was an absolute miracle, but it taught Americans a lot of things about who they could be, what they could be, and maybe why they should think that this was an important thing to do. So I just wanted to lay that groundwork because, you know, we freaking forget about World War One. It's just that thing that kind of happened. The British act like they own World War One. I. I don't know if you know, but you know when you go there in November, everybody's wearing a little poppy, um, a little yep. uh, felt poppy, right? So, so they really, they really act like they own World War One. And I, I mean, I'm sure somebody British can explain to me why, but I mean, it was the la that last year was it was an American war. I mean, it was a, a French war. It was a British war. Obviously, it was a German war. But I mean, that was a turning point for America. And we were like, okay, we're going to be a superpower. We're going to make things and we're going to figure out how to get them out of here. And we're going to integrate ourselves into the American, into, sorry, into the global economy. So then we can start to shape the world in our image. So World War I is very important. World War II, we get to put all of that into practice, like for reals. And um, and then the Cold War. So, you know, I think that it was very clear at the end of World War II, I know a lot of people felt this way, that Stalin was a scary dude. Mm -hmm. You know, and maybe I'm not telling you anything new, but I think there was tremendous fear since the Bolshevik Revolution of what was in 1918, um, that there was something really freaky about them Russians 
and their politics and their intentions. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit the way we feel about China now, but we we're obviously we'll talk about China in a minute. But um, and so yeah, so I really believe that building up Japanese manufacturing, rebuilding manufacturing abroad in general was a way to start to lay down those very important uh, political connections in a way that could not be broken. So remember, you have GATT. Remember, you have the the predecessor to the World Trade Organization Mm, yeah, um, that comes out of World War II also. It's led by the United States. But it's really that Woodrow Wilson belief that if everybody is connected through manufacturing and trade, we will never have another World War, which obviously got disproven in World War II. But <laughs> very, 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 very quickly. We're going to try it again, but this time America has super muscles. I think his. I think the point holds, and we can talk about this later too when we talk about about China. Um, Churchill wanted to keep going and finish Stalin off, by the way, and uh, I don't know. Really, right. Patricia was like half dead at that point. He was <laughs> like matter. probably delirious. He, he knew what he was talking about with with respect to. He didn't like fascist type people. He was not. Yeah. He's not good. He was good about fighting these people. Remember when Americans didn't like fascists either? Yeah, I don't know. You know, this is a mystery to me because I feel like you know we're about the same age. We grew up. All of the pop culture was like Nazis are bad. They're always the bad guy in every movie. Or every TV, you know, they're just that's just kind of the embodiment of evil. And now we have this whole like movement of people that are like, are they bad? Maybe they're not bad. Maybe. Actually, Nazis they have some are cool. good ideas. Yeah, they're, they're like, like you know, pretty good people on both sides. Yeah, they're they're people on both sides. You know, in America, the the trains were uh, ran on different gauges, but in Italy, the trains ran on time. You know, yeah. this kind of thing, and it's like, what the fuck are you people talking about? It doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, yeah. Other than as as an uh, some sort of op or, or whatever. By the way, in in Britain, um, and I read this in one of the James Bond books, uh, they refer <laughs> to World War One, the old school's uh, British guys, as the 1418 War. That's what they called it after, which I think is, downplays it. The 1418? Yeah, it's what the 1418 mean? War. 1914 and 1918. You know, like, it's the oh. 1418 War. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> as if it was some little blip in the, you know, and but, speaking so, of Churchill, you know, it was during World War One when he made a huge tactical error in Gallipoli. Yeah. He, you know, he was responsible for an astounding amount of death. Yeah. During World War One. Oh my God. So many heroes, quote unquote, came out of World War One who then, you know, steered us through World War Two. So strange. And yeah. Hitler too. Yeah. You know, he was yeah. uh, I'm not saying he's a hero, obviously, but I mean he was a fighter in World War One. And he learned many, many lessons doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the 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 grievance narrative. <laughs> well, the grievance narrative is always yeah. Um, so I feel like the the first you were talking earlier about like how the the location of the places that do the manufacturing shifts through time. I feel like Japan was was Japan was Japan like the first one after the war where everything's made in Japan because there was a period when that was sort of the center for you know cheap things oh it's made in japan or yeah know. do you remember yeah. that vaguely <laughs> it's crazy to think about yeah well remember it was occupied japan for a while and mm-hmm. actually i found my my um my ex-husband's grandmother um gave me her 
little teacup collection. They were like espresso cups. And there was one that I wanted to keep, but I gave them all back because I'm a good person. But it said made in occupied Japan. <laughs> what are you laughing about? I'm laughing at because you're a good person. <laughs> I am a good person. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because occupied <laughs> Japan is so funny. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's a crazy concept, but actually, they, so so this is a really cool little slice of um, history here that I, I have in my book. But yeah, so so Japan was devastated. We didn't want them making weapons anymore, or anything that could be used against another country. Um, so what we actually did, even before the war was over, was started to rebuild their textile industry. So textile and apparel industry and Again, this is this is what I'm most interested in because it yeah. is the lowest common denominator of manufacturing. And so um, when this concept was proposed that we would supply the Japanese with knowledge and looms and all kinds of equipment to, to restart their textile industry, um, the the uh, a lot of the conservative states were like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 hold on, hold on. What about us? And um, the American government ended up making a deal with cotton manufacturers, sorry, cotton growers in the South, so that they would get paid pretty well for cotton that then was exported to Japan. So this is the beginning of now what we do, which is we grow cotton and then we export it for manufacturing elsewhere, mostly Asia. So that was happening really early on. So the other cool thing that came out of my research was and and maybe you know about this but have you have you ever heard of um kaizen 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 so it's a manufacturing philosophy or system okay and it's called kaizen which is a japanese word i'm blanking on exactly the translation but um it was first i air quotes here it was first exported to the united states when toyota started manufacturing cars in the u.s and the idea behind Kaizen is it's a complicated system, but generally my understanding is that it's looking at the whole system as, as a unit. So thereby anybody at any point along that line, that manufacturing line, their input is invaluable. And so how they work, any ideas they might have for speeding up the line or becoming more efficient or whatever it is, is valuable and important. And so it, in a way it's kind of leveling. So it takes away, you know, the, the pyramidal structure of a lot of um, manufacturing systems and it works toward, we're all on this together. Yeah. Now the funny thing is that, you know, there was a lot of hand wringing when Toyota first came over here because, um, oh my God, you know, they're bringing this concept, this Japanese concept to American factories, but Americans are individualists, you know, will it be able to translate to American culture? So that, so there were a lot of books about that and articles about that, but the funny thing is Kaizen is actually American. Okay. So during World War II, as we were building up manufacturing in Japan, one of the things, and manufacturing in the U.S. so that we could build these bombers and liberty ships and everything super fast. One of the things that the um, American military did was hire like American manufacturing experts to help get everybody on the same page and grow manufacturing really fast. And so they developed what is now known as Kaizen. 
a simple system where, um, you know, just what I described. They send it over to the Japanese. The Japanese are like, this makes a lot of sense. Repackage it, bring it back to the U.S. And then the Americans are like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? We can't work this way. <laughs> oh, my God. Every, everything, what goes around comes around, I guess. You know, right? Yeah. That, that's what Kaizen means in, in Japanese. What goes around comes around. <laughs> um, but it sounds like a, that does sound like a good system because if you're obviously, if you're working in a place like that, you feel empowered and you feel valued. And I think, you know, that's what people want when they're, when they have jobs, they want to feel like they're valued and like what they're doing is important to the people running the operation. So even if they're not at least feeling that way is, is important <laughs> as a motivating tactic rather than um, you are part of, you are a cog in the machine. If you're not going to work for 20 hours today, you're fired and we'll hire somebody else who can be a cog in the machine or whatever. Um, you know, nobody wants to work like that. That's just sucks. So, well, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. And that's kind of, so, so my book is based around an actual company that is trying to do manufacturing the right way. And again, what is the, what does that mean the right way? All of their workers are unionized, so they're represented. They have um, vacation time. They have paid sick leave. They have um, all kinds of perks or benefits that you would expect to find more at a middle class level rather than at a you know lower manufacturing level, especially apparel. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they're doing this is because they want to prove that it is possible. And what's interesting is, you know, you're talking about being a cog in the machine versus feeling valued. Right. And I feel like in any manufacturing system, whether you're manufacturing a magazine or whether you're manufacturing <laughs> insurance claims or whatever it is, yeah. you know, we can all either feel like we are disposable or a cog in machine, or we can feel valued. So I think it's interesting that, you know, I, I think it's rather arbitrary that we have decided that there's something about manufacturing that is um, inhumane or um, uh, what is it like anonymizing? Is that a word? <laughs> Yeah, no, I know what you mean though. It's like you're just a, you're just a faceless drone in this machine of man, manufacturing where you're sitting there building something tangible. You'd be yeah. better served doing SEO at this marketing company. You know, like that's <laughs> but, somehow better. Like it's not it's all, you know, what, what does it matter? Like jobs are jobs and the yeah, it, it's about how it's perceived by society, I think, or by the by, you know, definitely media that, and all this stuff. Definitely, definitely. I mean, society, culture, I mean, you know, I'm banging my fist on the desk here. It's like, we have to change. We have to embrace these things. But also consider this. There are a lot of people who really don't want to sit at a desk and stare at a computer. Yeah. And they would much prefer to work with their hands or machines. And um, the idea of creating something tangible um, feels good. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, you know, you've got a pile of hoodies yeah. that you can say, I made that. Mm -hmm. And then you can watch them get packed up and shipped out. And then people wear them like, look at you. You're wearing that hoodie that I wrote about. I can't I did. believe it. I know. I, I have it. Are we allowed <laughs> to say the name of the company or no? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I've been searching for a company to write about for about 20 years. And I finally found it in Maine. The company is called American Roots. 
and they are just outside of Portland, Maine, and they are owned by a husband-wife team, believe it or not. And the husband actually, um, Ben Waxman, spent a decade organizing workers around the country, mostly in the Rust Belt, for the AFL-CIO. Um, so he really saw what happened. He, he, he saw how manufacturing built community. And then he saw how the gutting of manufacturing destroyed community. And that's a story I think most of us know well, but he was right there. Yeah. And um, he, he understood manufacturing as an incredibly powerful tool in community building, in empowering uh, marginalized communities. But beyond that, politically, it's, it's, it's critical to America's future. Um, or any country's future, but you know, I'm focused on America because I'm American. Yeah. So it's American Roots, R-O-O-T-S. That's the name of the company, in case people are listening and curious. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's a nice city, man. I've had the city a while now. It's good. Comes oh, I mean. And such. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all American sourced hoodie. So the cotton obviously is from the United States and every single part from the zipper to the grommets to the drawstring. Um, is sourced from manufacturers in the U.S., which is not easy. It took them yeah. a long time to build, you know, reliable sourcing. Um, and then, yeah, the, the hoodie is um, cut and stitched together in Portland, Maine. Yeah, it's pretty cool. amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm very excited for your book. I can't wait to read it. I, you know, talking about it the way back when I was excited to read it, and I'm even more excited to read it now. So, oh, good. Um, yeah, yeah. So again, it's called Making It in America, which, as you point out, Dublon Tondra, very good. Um, and it's coming out on on November 14th, um, which is the day after my birthday. So, you know. Hey, happy birthday. You're a Scorpio. Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, happy, happy birthday to me. So, okay. So this is a good time to take a little break. We're going to be right back with Rachel Slade. surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. 
but with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler. How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hi, I'm Dan Dunn, host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, the most wildly entertaining adult beverage-themed podcast in the history of the medium. That's right, the boozy best of the best, baby. And we have the cool celebrity promos to prove it. Check this out. Hi, I'm Allison Janney, and you're here with me on What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And that's my sexy voice. Boom. Boom is right, Academy Award winner Allison Janney. As you can see, celebrities just love this show. How cool is that? Hey, this is Scotty Pippen, and you're listening to The Dan Dunn Show. And, wait, hold on. The name of the show is what? All right, sure. Scotty Pippen momentarily forgot the show's name, but there's a first time for everything. Hey, everyone, this is Scoot McNary. I'm here with Dan Dunn on What Are You Drinking? What's it called again? Fine, twice. But famous people really do love this show. Hi, this is Will Forte, and you're, for some reason, listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. What do you mean, for some reason, Will Forte? What's going on? Hi, this is Kurt Russell. Listen, I escaped from New York, but I couldn't get the hell out of Dan Dunn's happy hour. Please, send help. Send help? Oh, come on, Kurt Russell. Can somebody out there please help me? I'm Dita Von Tees, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. Let me try one more time. Come on. Is that right? What we're drinking? It's amazing. It's amazing. Is it right? Ah, that's better. So be like Dita Von friends, and listen to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, available wherever you get your podcasts. The issues of the day are really complicated. Everybody loves a good hot take, but really understanding an issue takes some digging. I'm Asha Rangaba. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. Join us each week as we dig deep into pressing legal topics. Listen to It's Complicated anywhere you get your podcasts, and check out our YouTube channel.
Okay, we're back with Rachel Slade. Before the break, we were talking about American roots. We're talking about you. You brought up the unions, and this is I have now just a list of questions and topics to throw at you because I want to okay. I want to pick your Great. brain about certain things and and how you see things based on what you've been researching for the last couple of years while you uh, worked on this book. So uh, I'm thinking about unions a lot because obviously the the Writers Guild is on strike, and mm. you know, there's. My take on unions is that obviously I'm pro-union, but I feel like the the societal way that unions are perceived tends to be negative because it's associated with organized crime. It's associated with work slowdown. It's associated with, hey, I need you to do this thing. And and somebody being like, I can't do that until 10 o'clock because I'm on my coffee break, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not really what it is. And I feel like unions... Um, in some way, you know, obviously the the, the future of of uh, the, the economy sort of depends on it, because when you have capital um, controlled by huge corporations, um, the only possible ballast and, and way to uh, or bulwark against that force, something that large and powerful is a union. Where are unions in the grand scheme of things in the United States right now? And do you see it getting better, getting worse? neutral? What's your take on what's happening now? Yeah. Um, so I do absolutely address this in the book. Um, because I, like you, actually, you know, I don't know if your upbringing was like this, but like in, I, I kind of, you know, became a teenager in the 1980s, um, which Same. was, a, <laughs> right. Which <laughs> was a super anti-union moment as we were getting ready to adopt free trade, as we were getting ready to, you know, enact NAFTA. I mean, I feel like the entire decade was just a big old arm ramp to Milton Friedman uh, delights. Yeah, great. So, <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, of course, you know, in, in a lot of um, cultural cultural depictions like unions are seen as bad they slow things down they make things expensive they they make working people feel entitled how dare they um <laughs> i mean at the very least i i wish that we had labor history in schools yeah you know, just just give me like half a semester because our entire world Everything that we know about working in America would be absolutely completely different if it hadn't been for the organizing uh, fervor of, you know, people late 19th century, early 20th century, and then obviously Franklin Roosevelt, people starting to be recognized um, as humans. Mm -hmm. right? So I am very hopeful about unions because so many people are unionizing now and yeah. and a lot of people who we didn't expect to unionize like Amer uh, amazon warehouse workers and um graduate students uh starbucks baristas starbucks baristas i mean here's the thing the more america unionizes the more we will i believe have compassion for each other as poor schmucks who are just trying to make a living and, you know, <laughs> get it done. <laughs> Seriously. 
for me, I, I, I think, and I talk a lot about community, but I mean, I really think this is it, you know, the whole bowling alone concept, the idea that we are a fractured society, that we are siloed, that we don't see ourselves and others. I, I blame that in part because, um, well, frankly, as a workforce, we are very fractured, but yeah. unions, brotherhood, bring us together, sisterhood. You know, I thought it was really charming when I was working on people are going to say charming how's this charming but i thought it was really charming when i was working on into the raging sea and i was hanging around with a lot of um, maritime union people and they always ended their emails with you know in brotherhood or your brother or you know in solidarity and it were it was like those little things it sounds semantic but it has tremendous it's touching it has tremendous yeah. meaning and so i am hopeful that as more people unionize again, don't forget, like, this is the, the moment of, this is, you know, since, I guess, 1930, this is the moment of the lowest um, representation in history of, of, of the United States. So in 90 years, yeah, right, um, we are now, I think, at 7% unionized in the United States. The... Do you know that? Do you know the moment we when um, more Americans were unionized than any other? And do you know actually the percentage? Uh, no, and I do not. Okay, so don't quote me on this, but I think it was about 1968 okay. to 1970, um, and I would say the peak unionization level was 33 percent. I was going right? to guess a third. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So like one out of three people was a member of the union, which meant that they were getting pulled into all kinds of interesting discussions about politics, yeah. right? And about their neighborhood and about their city and about, you know, thinking a lot larger about their place within this network. And yeah. so from a political standpoint, I mean, forget about the whole um you know just it's better for everybody to be paid well um and you know ha have holidays and you know be able to take their kids to school or to the doctor if they're sick the idea that like we can start to see ourselves and others yeah yeah really no important. i and it's interesting also i think by being part of the union and participating in these things you're getting information that isn't fucking bullshit Yes. It's not Lauren Boebert saying, let's start with communists, you know, That's right. or whatever. Or it's the saying, church or evangelists. Right. Yeah. It's saying, hey, if this happens, if the United States defaults on its loans, we're all fucked. Like everybody on planet Earth is fucked forever because they're just the Chinese yuan is going to take over as the default currency for the for the free world and that's it we're just end end the book on it so um you know these people are fucking evil and that's you know that's what's happening but it's not that now that people don't have any source of information other than like you say some church which is you know based on who knows what certainly not economic drivers which is what unions are based on primarily and, uh, you know, and, and being able to say, if this policy is enacted, this is what is going to happen. This is what we anticipate will happen. Therefore, right. vote accordingly. That's know. right. I yeah. mean, it was just a tremendous source of good information to people who work. Yeah. You know, and we have pretty much lost that. And I think that's probably what was most threatening 
um, to to the Reaganites mm-hmm. and the reactionaries was that, oh my God, there's this network that we can't control, this network of information, you know, this strong political network that we absolutely have no control over, right? Um, they wanted that to dissolve. And so they started to put out a lot of bad press about the unions. And of course, of course, of course, of course, um, you know, the unions were corrupted at moments. Um, there was a lot of money going to pension funds. There still is. Uh, the pension funds in America are actually, I think, represent the the largest chunk of money in the market, pension funds. Um, you know, it's funny. I was trying to get rights for a song to include year, lyric, the lyrics of the song in my book. And um, I had to track down who owned those rights. And I finally got to one of the largest rights owners in America. You know, they just bought up everybody and mm-hmm. everything. And so, and I was like, okay, well, who owns them? And once you know it, I, I believe it was the Minnesota, uh, like, Workers' Pension Fund, Minnesota State, State Pension Fund. Huh. They own, yeah, right? I yeah. mean, we, so we, we don't, I think a lot of people forget that when you're a union, you have these enormous pension funds, and they didn't just finance the construction of casinos in Cuba or, you know, <laughs> Las Vegas. Yeah. There's a lot more work that pension funds do in the United States um, to secure capital and um, protect workers. Well, I think that, you know, when we're talking about the dip in union membership and and, and how it's as low as it's been, Nothing is perhaps more symbolic of this than Ronald Reagan firing all of the air traffic controllers who were in yeah. the, you know, in that union, and then them naming the fucking airport after him, you know, in DC. <laughs> it's like I, I don't know what the what the analogy there would be. Oh, I mean, God. you know, hmm. um, yeah. I'll have to think about that. You know, a lot of people target that as as a cultural touchstone um i've actually read different versions of that and it turns out that the guy who was representing um, the air traffic controllers at that moment was fairly fresh in the job fresh in the seat and was maybe he was he might have been overstepping actually he probably was he was a fucking pain in the ass yeah um and you know reagan fired all those people i'm not saying it didn't set off you know, a whole series of events. It certainly signaled that, you know, the executive branch was no longer going to be sympathetic to mm-hmm. to organize um, people who are organized. But, you know, that specific example might not be a great one. But in I, any case... I'm going to go with my, my basic law of everything, which is that um, Reagan is probably <laughs> responsible if it's bad. There's okay, no way. Yeah. To, yeah. Uh, it all, it goes back to him in some capacity. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it was a necessary step toward, toward loosening up the chains so that we could pursue free trade. I yeah. mean, it had to happen. And that was very, very much top of mind on the agenda. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of my information. I got a lot of this particular information from Evil Geniuses by Kurt Anderson. Oh yeah. Great. Yep. Great. I love the, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He's, He's I mean, been on the show. He's yeah. Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just oh what? Yeah, yeah. No, he's yeah, great. Yeah. I love Kurt Anderson. Yeah, yeah. co-founded think... Spy Magazine, which is the greatest thing ever. So, right. Yeah. So 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 yeah. So worship worship by Don Don to yeah, yeah. Kurt Anderson, but um, absolutely yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the idea that there were my position is that there was really nothing those guys wanted to do more 
than to ditch the unions, outsource manufacturing, and start up this whole global trade thing so that they could get absolutely fantastically rich. And I do believe that that's part of the reason that they started shifting workers away from pensions toward 401ks mm. so that everybody would be invested in the market so that even if people were making less, relatively speaking, and no longer had access to good like union manufacturing jobs, at least the market was doing well. And so their 401ks were going up. Interesting. Right. Because if pension yeah. is pensions are just in it's just invested differently, right? Is that it's not yeah, you, yeah. you just get a certain amount of money based on right. your whatever it is. And you, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then there were people who manage pension funds and some of them were better than others. And somebody some of them really screwed over the unions. But um in general, yeah. I mean, the idea was that a pension fund was tied to the stock market, but you were guaranteed a certain income when you got out. Now with everybody with 401ks, we all got thrown into the uncertainty of the market, but then it tied us to the market in a way yeah. that we would not have been before is my point. Yeah. Um, and so then we were desperate for all of these large corporations to make money by hook or by crook, whatever they needed to. Or, or by not even to make money, by for their stock price to go up, which sorry, is slightly sorry, different. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for making that distinction. Short yes. term, short term gain always. Yes. Never yes. any long term anything. You know, right. nothing beyond next quarter going up, 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 up. Um, yeah. I mean, if you just invest all your money in Tesla, I think that's the thing to do. I mean, they're president. The guy. So oh, is smart, that your stock so tip sharp. of the day? Yeah. No, <laughs> it is so not. I would, I would stay. I would steer clear. I used to have stock in Tesla. Yeah. Um, like you actually called up a broker and said, "Buy me some Tesla." No, I used E-Trade or whatever, but oh. yeah, no, I bought like a couple of whatever, eight shares of oh, Tesla. Oh, that's what people do now? Sorry, you can see how naive I am about it. Investing. Yeah, I, my broker's EF Hutton and he says, no, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I sold it when when Elon Musk said he was going to take over Twitter. And really? I, so I, yeah, because I was like, it's, huh. it's over. So now. that's what it took. Yeah, because so I knew it was going to fucking Twitter? tank. He sucks. It's going to tank. Um yeah. Every once in a while, my research into fuckery pays off in, in some tangible way. This is, we're talking very little amounts of money here, but you know. So it's yeah. good to know. It's a funny story. Well, maybe not so funny, but you know, I'm a bike, I bike to, I'm a bike commuter. I like, I, I used to anyway, bike a lot. And inevitably, if somebody was being super aggressive and trying to run you over, it was a black BMW. It just, it was yeah. always a black BMW. I can't explain why it was just the thing. But that has completely changed here. I live in Boston, so it's completely changed. And now if somebody's trying to run you over and being super aggressive, inevitably it's a Tesla. Yeah, well, yeah, that makes sense. Also, you can't hear them because they, they make no noise. They're like stealthy. Oh, you can hear them. Oh, you can, okay, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. yeah. <laughs> you can hear that that self-righteous, I'm, I'm driving an electric vehicle from like a mile away. But yeah, so so there they are, like saving the world, not really, not um, at all. And at the same time, you know, with the with the very I'm driving a BMW attitude, which is like I'm way more important than you, dearie. I have four wheels, you have two. Yeah, 
uh four wheels bad two wheels good that's animal <laughs> animal farm for the i'll take animal, three wheels i almost said animal house which is a totally different <laughs> which topic. i probably watched like a hundred times <laughs> really me too i've seen it so oh, yeah? many times like, uh, yeah we used to watch it in college like almost every day it's it's embarrassing how many times i've seen that movie like I don't it, it is embarrassing i'm no i'm not embarrassed no it's fucking great <laughs> guilty place it's so well done and you keep seeing things in it Right. It, yeah. it works on so many levels. <laughs> the best part is that he's, you know, that that he's uh Bluto becomes a senator. Because yeah, right. That's exactly Isn't what that, he is. Yeah. That is exactly right. Yes. Yeah. It's Thank perfect. you, Bluto. Yeah. Yeah. Poor John Belushi. Yeah. R.I.P. R.I.P. man. Um, okay, there's no easy segue from Animal House to China, but we're gonna try to make it anyway. Um oh, I don't think you could. <laughs> I don't think I can. I don't think there's anything about about that, that, that maybe one of the floats at the parade at the end is like vaguely Chinese themed and some <laughs> yes there is there's like there's like a Mongolian yeah it's probably Mongolian. It maybe it's Genghis they're like Khan. shaking hands and then it breaks apart and yeah. D-Day comes out with the yeah oh my god sorry yes no no it's <laughs> yeah it's Genghis Khan and I think and he goes over the fire hydrant and then yeah. okay anyway never mind who if you haven't watched Animal House, just do it. <laughs> if you haven't watched Animal House, why are you listening to this? Turn us off and watch Animal House. The, the, um, also, you know, one of the asshole bad guy frat boys' name is Greg, of course, because Greg is a is a bad guy name. I mean, you know, it just is. We got Greg Abbott. It's Greg Jarrett. The what's the guy's name? That the the Fox late night guy now. The the horrible. Oh, don't even um, ask me. I have no idea. Greg Gutfeld. It's it's yeah. Really, that's There's, a name. Yeah, That's there's not there's not so many good Gregs. It's really frustrating for me. Well, so. look, you, you know, you'll be the first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so China. China. What's your take on it in general about the trade deficits and stuff like that? Because you mm. were talking before about Wilson's idea of how countries that trade together don't go to war. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I've always sort of applied that thinking to China because we owe them so much fucking money that what are they going to do? take us out and then we can't pay them. It doesn't behoove them to do that in any way. I mean, that's absolutely true. And, um, and I do believe that's kind of what's protecting us a bit. Um, yeah, well, first of all, I I mean, hey, look, I, you know, I'm not in international politics. I'm not in the room where it happens, but um, I don't think, I don't think China wants to go to war with anybody. But I do think that, you know, the Chinese have a responsibility to take care of their own, just like we do. Yeah. And, you know, there was this, I think there was bizarrely, and I, I okay, I'm just going to say it. Um, I think there was a lot of in good faith stuff going on when we first gave um, China most favored status mm -hmm. um, in 19, oh, sorry, 2002. I think probably it was based a little bit on racism, like how clever could be the Chinese be, you know, that it. 50 years ago or not even 30 years ago they were mostly agrarian so you know we'll we'll just uh send some manufacturing over there and nobody will get hurt and then the chinese will always beholden, be beholden to us i think that was the basic theory anyway but you know the chinese have pride in what they do and who they are in their incredible thousands and thousands year old culture and um, I think they're taking care of business. They're taking care of themselves, um, which means, which which is what is driving in part my book and my examination of what's happening in America. Because well, we have a responsibility to take care of ourselves too. 
So one of the things that, that I sent you was um, that story about Chinese lending and building infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. So they're going around and they, I talked about this on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago um, with John Fowler, the, the Australian former diplomat, about um, it's it's the, what is it, Belt Road Initiative, uh, where they just go and, and um, sign agreements with countries all over the place, mostly involving logistics uh, and um, you know, things like that, so they can get raw materials from places. And as the article stated, and this is, you know, something they're doing, some of these countries take money from China, and we don't really even know what the usurious terms are of these loans, but they come due and then, uh-oh, uh, you know, what are we going to do? China generally has been less forgiving and less willing to compromise than, um, you know, the World Bank, the IMF, whatever the, the Western-controlled uh, financial outlets are. Um, not that they're any great picnic, by the way. Um, you know, it's not like that's wonderful either. It's like, gee, should I should I go to Don Corleone or or, or Barzini to get my money? No, but at least they're concerned about optics. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I can't I can't decide which which loan shark is gonna you know mm. uh, <laughs> which but, which but leg very, is he gonna break? Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. But I mean, you know, for the most part, what we're seeing is that these were opportun these were very opportunistic deals that you know, secured the power of leaders in the short term. Um, and what's, I think, m most evil, perhaps, is that, first of all, the infrastructure that, the, that that was built for the most part on, you know, financed by these usurious loans were to enable Chinese companies to extract raw materials from said country, right? So said country is paying Chinese companies to build the infrastructure that then Chinese use to their own mm -hmm. benefit. Um, and then it would help secure power in the short term for whatever administration is like, you know, cutting these deals. And then that those people can leave, right? And that's really the problem with global capital in general, is that you can leave, right? So when we're talking about manufacturing, again, just bringing it back, um, you go into this is this is a big problem right now. You go into Cambodia, you go into Vietnam. I'm talking about free floating capital, um, and you set up all these structures to get people making things. And then when it becomes too expensive because people are organized or they expect more services or now they're more skilled, the capital moves on. There's yeah. no responsibility to nation and. So this is borderless capital and, you know, the Chinese loans are essentially borderless loans. They're, they're really only designed as far as, as far as I can tell, um, to benefit ultimately the Chinese. And, um, you know, I can't, I, I, I'm going to be nice and I'm going to say who can blame them, but it seems like, um, we probably need a better system, but also Americans, uh, need to protect themselves as well just yeah like we would be having very different conversations if our economy at this point weren't so completely intertwined with the chinese economy not sorry let me back that up not even the chinese economy we would be having a different conversation 
if we weren't so dependent on the Chinese goods, Chinese manufactured goods. Yeah. And ultimately, that's where I land with making it in America is we can't even begin to be a world power, I think, in the sense that we would like to see ourselves unless we have some capacity to make all the things that we use every day, not just chips, uh, computer chips, you know, not just cars, but like everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I, well, you know, the pandemic, I think really sort of brought that to bear because you saw these shortages of strange things like pharmaceuticals. Um, mm, one, one thing like, oh my God, these are all made in India. Fuck. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, why is that made that, you know, like you, you mm. think something like that should be made in the United States. We'd want more controls over it, more, more rigorous controls over it, but no. Um, and yeah. So, you know, but what do we, I guess, what it was we very sobering. About? Yeah. I mean, it was extremely sobering for lots of Americans to suddenly be confronted with shortages. Like we'd never seen that before. And it wasn't shortages. Exactly. It was just that stuff wasn't able to get here. Like Chinese, yeah. Yeah. you know, um, but the whole thing about drugs, so I, I think you know Catherine Eben, Eben? Mm -hmm. Eben. Um, Eben, okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Eben, I'm gonna try to remember that. Although it sounds like- It doesn't sound like it should be pronounced that way, but it, that's how it's pronounced. Yeah, but it also sounds like, like something that you would do to your kids and to punish them for being on TikTok too long. <laughs> They'd have an Eben. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's how you'll remember. That's how I'll remember it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I have a mnemonic. Yeah, um, she's great. I love her. She's, she's oh my God, great work. She's wonderful. And she wrote the book. You're going to book about the pharmaceuticals. Yeah. The, mm. the, the generic drugs. Yeah. Yes. Which I refer to. Um, but yeah, America's Americans aren't used to not be having their, what is the latest thing now? I mean, it keeps making the front page of the New York Times. We don't have our um, ADHD drugs, right? Yeah. No, Adderall. Yeah. Adderall. Adderall. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's an Adderall shortage in America, which, which, I don't know, says a lot more about Americans than it does about manufacturing that this is like a yeah. really big problem. I mean, forget about the cancer drugs and, you know, the transplant drugs and all those other things that for some reason we don't have, but get me some Adderall. Yeah. Anyway, um, so what are we going to do about it? So first of all, there are a lot of things that will be very difficult to do. And one of them that you touched on was just changing the culture around work yeah like what kinds of work is acceptable what kinds of work is actually desirable what does it mean to be successful in america what kinds of work do we want to do you know developing a different way to think about work and our relationship to work i mentioned to you in my email that i that i'm starting to look more at this idea of trade schools yeah so the other day, uh, I met um, a woman who runs a private, built, built on a foundation trade school um, in Boston. And um, I was just like, I, I want to go there. I want to find out what is this all about, a trade school. Um, they give out, I think, a two-year degree. And she was talking to me about how difficult this is. First of all, just to get financing for the students, because um, a lot of them are returning citizens, which means I, I hadn't heard that term before, but it means that they've spent some time as incarcerated people and, and now they're transitioning back into 
um, out, outside the walls. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're looking, you know, for, for focus. And um, you've got some kids straight out of high school, but then you have a lot of kids also who were like in the service industry or maybe driving Uber or, you know, making coffee. And they wanted some skills. They wanted to participate in um, something that required more. And so they're going back and what the, um, they're going, and they're going to these trade schools. So what do trade schools teach? And how do they decide what they're going to teach? Mm-hmm. So, you know, they've always had a strong connection to industry, but recently, you know, in the past like 30 years, because there's so much less industry, those connections have been somewhat broken. And now there are new leaders stepping forward to run these schools, to reach out to industry, all kinds of industry and say, hey, what do you need? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you need? What do you need pe- Americans to do now? And so these schools, I think, will be the beginning of, of a different kind of America. Um, so in that school, they're teaching green energy, for example. So they're teaching students obviously electrical engineering, but the hands-on kind of electrical mm-hmm. engineering. Um, for a long time, most of that was about servicing, um, you know, HVAC systems, so heating yep. heating and cooling systems, refrigerants, that sort of thing. But they're, they're doing that, but at the same time, they're shifting some of the best students over to learning how to service turbines and how to lay down the electrical infrastructure and, and repair the electrical infrastructure um, to be able to really, really, really build a green economy, which is fantastic. Yeah. But, you know, what industry needs is not necessarily apparent. And so the leaders of a lot of these schools have to do a lot of the work themselves, you know, like look out there, (laughs) reach out to people. These are these are phone calls. These these are phone calls from like a president of a small trade school in Boston to General Dynamics or you know some other large corporation, just saying, "Who can I talk to? What do you guys need?" And this is all really important stuff because um, I think the other article that I sent about you, the semi the semiconductors because by you know we've shut that down in China. We didn't. We don't want China making the computer chips anymore. But if they're not going to make them, we have to make them. And who's going to make them? And there's a shortage, uh, you know, there's a labor shortage of people that know how to do that. And there's factories being built across the United States in various places. And they're going to need people that know how to do that, um, you know, which is not going to be yeah. me because I don't know how to do it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know the well, first thing about it. I wouldn't I would know. send you to trade it, school. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so the idea is like a lot of this stuff is going to be automated. And so we also need people at every level who understand robotics and programming and servicing these machines as well. I mean, even even as things become more automated, um, we're going to need people who understand things. And um, the factory built in some place in Arizona, first of all, super bad idea. Like we should be building manufacturing around cities where there are concentrations of populations. And And lots of commercial real estate that's just sitting vacant, by the way. Just, you know, just throwing that out there. Lots of space now in these cities. You're talking about the office buildings? Yeah, yeah. just everywhere. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're rich in public transportation and we're rich in space. 
and you could actually manufacture down in downtown Boston at this point. Yeah. yeah, you saw you saw those articles about how much empty space is in the city. And so instead, I don't I just don't understand this approach is just like find a virgin spot somewhere, you know, outside of some car dependent city in Arizona, build a factory and then hope people will come. Right. In a place where That's there's not going to be any crazy. water in 10 years. It's a great idea. Yeah. Not I mean, well, obviously, yes. Um, so yeah, a lot of we so it's interesting because um in my conclusion to making it in America, um, I talk about how difficult it is to manufacture here ethically, right? It's expensive. Yeah. Um, but one of the key ingredients to manufacturing successfully is locating your factory in a place where you have workers who are looking for that kind of work. I mean, this yep. is fundamental, right? This is like business one-on-one. Um, workers who are looking for that kind of work and there isn't too much competition for their labor so that you can keep prices fairly reasonable. Mm -hmm. Duh, that's, that's yeah. pretty much yeah. the beginning and end of it, right? Um, so, Basically, the United States needs an entire rethink about our industrial policy, and it's going to be about schools, and it's going to be about how do we zone and locate these factories, and it's going to be about, you know, unionizing so that, you know, union shops take care of union shops. So we start to rebuild networks, supply networks, and people networks and political networks that will you know, boost this this system that I think we desperately need. It sounds like people are working on it. It sounds like people know what to do. So I feel I feel more hopeful ta having talked to you than I did while I was preparing the questions to ask you. I have to say, because it seems like, um, you know, the economics are such that so you know it's not even the one percent. It's this tiny group of people control so much fucking money. And are so reluctant and have, have gamed the system to such a degree that they're never going to get rid of it. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned evil geniuses. If you go and read about these these little foundations that are basically um, funding all of this right-wing uh, fuckery, nine times out of ten, it's a, a fortune that somebody inherited. And the rich person signing the check got their money from dad. It's not somebody usually that did it themselves, you know, so it's it's this person whose wealth probably should have been taken a lot of it away. It's 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 a walking argument for the fucking estate tax is what it is. You know, <laughs> um, the, the, these Koch brothers that they need, a, you know, pay, pay the pay the money to the government, guys. That's it. And at, at a certain point, um, historically speaking. There's this thing, and I'm not an economist by any means, but there's that the the Lorenz curve, which plots basically income inequality. Right. And when it bulges too much and too much capital gets tied up in too few hands, there is always revolution. Always, always, right. always. It doesn't ever not happen. So it behooves everybody for them to pay up a little bit more tax to avoid this sort of catastrophe. And, yeah, but you know, I, I would refute that mm -hmm. because these days, I mean, we are talking about borderless capital capital and we're yeah. talking about the billionaire class that really has no allegiance to any particular country anymore so i don't think that that's 
that's a factor in in their in their decision making process anyway. No, no, lock them um, the fuck. Send them the fuck out then. You know. Well, I mean, it, let's call it what it is. It's it's wealth hoarding. Yeah. And, um, you know, and it comes out of you said nothing. Anything that Reagan did did wasn't good. I mean, part of what he did was, you know, help us all get there, right? All think that like wealth was a great thing. <laughs> And greed is that's good. What we all, yeah, and and that's what we had to aspire to was to be wealthy. I'll 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 leave you with this. Um, one of my favorite research papers of all time. If anybody, has, uh, yeah. what? <laughs> everybody must have a favorite research paper. That's right? it. Now you you have to write Rachel Slade's top ten research papers of all okay. time. Okay. Great. Okay. So one of my favorite research papers of all time. Now, this was many years ago that I read it, but I cite it all the time, and I still think it's fascinating. So there was a school in New York City, and it was it was a it was a publicly funded school, I think. And the only requirement for getting in was that you had to have an IQ above something like one thirty or one forty, whatever it was. So they were only pulling in kids um, who could pass this IQ test, whatever you think about it, with flying colors. So in theory, these were this was a pretty smart bunch of kids, right? Mm -hmm. I want to get into the, the IQ. Yeah, no, no, no. We'll just, yeah. Okay, just like let's just let's just take that at face value. Yeah. Um, so after about 20 years, a researcher was very interested in what happened to all these really intelligent kids. What when they, you know, left the school and went into the workforce and blah blah blah, like what happened to them? So I'm curious, what do you think happened to them? Um, they got their lunch money taken, I think is what, is what happened to them. Um, you know, the, the problem is that is that intelligence is so varied along different lines. I mean, I, I might have said this before on the podcast. I went to high school with somebody who got a perfect score on the SAT. And I had to explain to this person when a bunch of us went to the pizzeria that it was actually more cost effective to order one pizza and split it than to just order slices. Like the brain just didn't go there because okay. it was, it was, that was a practical way of thinking about it. And her, she was huh. so lofty, you know, which is, she was it's very, very smart, but, but lacked the certain street smarts, you know, so there's different kinds of intelligence is my point. She probably yeah. would have aced the, I'm sure her IQ is super high, but you know, not everybody <laughs> with a high IQ could do very basic practical things. Remember on the West wing, there's a, there's a thing about the West wing where um, it's season two and they're out campaigning and they get they get stuck like Josh and Toby get stuck uh somewhere in Indiana. Oh yeah. With, um what's her what's her name? The the um you know Josh's love interests. Yeah. Uh Janelle, yeah. Uh, uh, God, I can't remember her name on the Donna um is is right. there with them. And the president says he hangs up the phone and he's like 300 IQ IQ points between them and if Donna wasn't there they would have to buy a house. <laughs> And that's, you know, that's, that's the thing. So anyway. All right. So Greg's sample of one and West Wing, Greg yep. has concluded that these people could not function in society or they'd have trouble functioning well in society. So I think that it's probably going to be less of a of a high success rate than maybe the school would have hoped for. That's my, okay. that's my guess. Okay. So the answer is, um, <clears throat> wrong. Ugh. Um, <laughs> They were comfortably middle, middle upper, middle upper class, all of them. Okay. 
for the most part. I mean, they figured out how to have a life with work-life balance. So they had families, they had work, they weren't crazy about the work because they didn't need any validation through material gain, but they had a very strong understanding of how much you did need to, you know, be comfortable. And that's what they shot for. So they found a, they, they found jobs that gave them a certain level of satisfaction and a certain amount of income where they didn't have to too, work too hard for it. In other words, they didn't need that validation. Yeah. Right. That a lot of these like Elon Musk types for some reason feel that they do. So I'm not saying that if you're a billionaire, that that should be a good tip off that you have an average IQ. I'm not saying that. I'm definitely not saying that. Oh, I'll say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're, definitely your moral IQ is very low. I mean, yeah, your moral IQ, absolutely. Yeah, you got to be ruthless. But, but also just the idea that that is something that somebody would want. It's sort of like, you know, when you were a kid and somebody would say, or you, and you would say to, I don't know, your grandpa, I want to be president of the United States. And grandpa, if he was smart, would say, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> like, that's a tough job. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I would hope that, that a sign of intelligence is just figuring out how to make it work without too much trouble. You would, you would, you would think. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's why I love this. I love this little piece of research so much because we live on a stunning planet. As far as I'm concerned, the best one out there. I don't want to go to Mars. It's I the best one I've been to. to. Right. <laughs> yeah. I have no desire to, you know, get moon dust all over me or, you know, in, in I just, in, in the gears of my bike, like, no, this planet is a, fucking miracle mm -hmm. and so i feel like the best life is the one where you work and you have time to go home and you have time to enjoy this beautiful place that we're on that's it that's what it's all about i right? agree yeah i think that's the way to go and you know i i want to say a quick elon musk thing because i actually had written this down in the article about uh in the times about the the chinese debt program zambia owes like $6 billion in debt. That's what they owe. Country of Zambia in mm -hmm. Southern Africa. Elon Musk paid what, 44 billion for Twitter? Like he could theoretically just write a check and clear their debt. Well, probably Putin paid that. I know. Well, let, let's just assume he has some control over the money here, <laughs> which I know that's a wild assumption, but like, uh -huh. it's not that much money is my point. If you're one of these super uber wealthy people and it's like, Probably wouldn't even occur to anybody to do something like that. So to bail I think out that, Zambia, you want you want Elon Musk to bail out Zambia? Yeah, why not? Bail out Zambia. Do something nice for some people. Do something good for society. <laughs> you know, he's practically from there. Isn't there an emerald mine there that his father, you know, oh, exploited? For Come fuck's on, fuck's sake! I'm sure. Well, I mean, you know, that's the whole thing about the Democratic Republic of Congo is that. Um, we've talked about this before, but obviously that's where all these minerals are coming from that you need to make yeah. the batteries. And so, you know, who owns Congo is basically the, the billionaire class. Yeah. 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 So why would he want to bail out Zambia when it could be possibly the next Congo? <laughs> just then he might make, <laughs> make people just indebted to you and, and. The, the riches will come to you. <laughs> I, I don't know. It just seems like, you know, it, it's that level of thing. But I think it 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 also speaks to the disparity of wealth. 
you know, that a nation should have that kind of debt load that an individual could pay off is is insane, I think, right. in this day and age. There has to be some better way to shake up the system. And I don't know what it is because every time there's some kind of, you know, uh, we have to, you know, seize the means of production, then it's, I just, it cuts to, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene bitching about communism. And I, I don't know. I think that you're you're the way that you ended it is right. I think that the, the the thing to do is to make enough money to be to live, you know, fairly comfortably and that's really all that you require. I mean there's no even even this like Rockefeller, John D Rockefeller gave most of his money away because he was like what am I going to do with it, you know? And uh yeah, yeah, you know, thank it's, God it's, he did. You know, I've have enough yeah. to I'm going to pay what I need to do the things. Guy went golfing every day no matter what, even if it snowed, <laughs> he hired people to clear it out, you know. So he could get his golf game in. So I would say that that's a smart person, although he he was very not nice to uh, steel workers, but or, or oil workers. But um, you know, when it came to labor, he wasn't great. But um, yeah. yeah, no, you know the story about his his daughter going to buy furniture. Yeah, this is this is it. We're gonna end after the the. Okay. <laughs> she went to go buy furniture at some store in in, in Lower Manhattan. I think she he was getting married or something, and they. You know, she went to the store. She's like, well, I don't have money with me, but I'm going to pay on credit. And they're like, who are you? And she's like, I'm Rockefeller. And they were like, yeah, just buy whatever you want. You know, <laughs> your, your credit's fine. But she didn't know because he he didn't tell them how rich he was. He didn't want his kids to be spoiled assholes. So he intentionally hid it as much as he could from his own wow. children. And she didn't realize how how loaded he was until she went furniture shopping and she was like, you know, when she was 25 or, so, you know, however old she was. So, oh, that's fascinating. Yes, there is an intelligence to that. Yeah. And um, I'm sure all of that furniture was made in the U.S. at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Something that I always look for. I mean, actually, it, until recently, most of the furniture was, a lot of the furniture was made in this. I'm talking about big stuff just because it was so expensive. To ship it. Yeah. But. Uh, they definitely changing. No, it's Ikea. It's the curse of Ikea. Oof, Ikea, yeah. Um, well, that's very fabulous. I'm I'm happy for for Rockefeller Jr. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember her name. It's Ethel. I want to say it's Ethel. I thought it began with an E. Eban. <laughs> <laughs> Your book is called Making It in America. You can go right now and pre-order it on Amazon, which you should absolutely do. Um, where can we find you? What's your tweet? Are you still on Twitter? Or are you, you no, I gave up the Twitter. You, you, did? you can find my, um, I did. Yeah. I mean, just for the same reason that you sold your Tesla stock, <laughs> which I'm I, sure I, broke Elon Musk's heart. He was like, no. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought he was evil like us. He has an evil name. Yeah. Oh, that's well. how that's how Musk knew it was over. But that's um, that's why he's so pissed off now. It's all my fault. Yeah, yeah. That's it's probably <laughs> you. That makes yeah. a lot of sense, actually. So so I my website is www. People can say that rachelslade.net, and um, if anybody wants to reach out to me, there's a little form there, and um, yeah, t tell me tell me how wrong I am, or if you're a really nice person, tell me how right I am. <laughs> <laughs> I I think um. I think people will, will tend to agree with me that you're right. Um, you know, you've been right most <laughs> of the good. time. You've been right oh, most thanks. of the time. So, uh, Rachel Slade, great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks so much, Greg.
The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth. I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.